in the kingdom of God. Tearing down walls between people that are racial in nature or gender in nature or economic in nature or anything in nature. God wants to use the ministry to do that. To, to be a tearing down walls and a, build, a bridge building kind of a ministry. And I really believe that if we have the faith and if we have the commitment, if we have the vision, we're going to see that happening in ways that we've never dreamed of. And I think it's right around the corner. We've seen a lot of it already. But I believe that, that it, I just have this sense of, of a time bomb wedding to explode. In fact, we've already been seeing the, the initial uh, explosions of it. Last week was one of the exploding times. I, I think we turned a corner last week. But see, here's the thing. For this to happen, for this to happen, three things are necessary. Saints of God, note them. Three things are necessary. Nothing, nothing of kingdom value happens without these three things. Number one is faith. Do you have faith that's big enough to keep up with God? Do you believe that God is able? Number two is commitment. Are you willing to stand up and be counted in any way that God wants you to stand up and be counted? In terms of your time, in terms of your resources, in terms of your abilities to, to be committed to the work of God. And number three, do we have a united vision? Now, this is what I'm going to be talking about here the next in this series is vision. I'm going to focus on vision. Vision is a picture of the future. It's the picture of the future that God wants you to move into. Us individually and us, more importantly, as a collective whole. It is a slice of the future where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, in a particular area that God wants to use you to bring about. That's a vision. You get a slice of, of the future. Vision defines what you have in common. Vision defines what you're about. Vision, the vision of the church tells us why are we here. What are we doing here? What, do, what is this about? Um, what are our values? What are our priorities? What are our goals? How do we know whether we're hitting them or not? That's what vision is all about. The Bible says this in Proverbs 29, that, that without a vision, the people, in the King James Version, it says the people perish. And in the New American Standard, it says that the, the people, uh, without a vision, the people are unrestrained. And the idea there is that people get dispersed. They perish, not they disappear, but they go in a lot of different directions, or they're unrestrained without a vision. Without a vision, you get a, a hundred people in a room, you got a hundred good ideas, and they all do them, but there's no focus to them. They all go in different directions. Vision is what restrains us. It channels our energy in a certain way. Uh, vision is, is what tells us what we do, and it tells us what we don't do. And there's a lot of good things that we don't do because our vision says there's other things that we need to do. You see what I'm saying? There's a million good things you could get involved in, but if it's not part of your vision, you let it go because you focus on the things that God has called to do. That's what vision is. It gives you your values. It gives you your priorities. It tells you whether you're going in the right direction or not. Vision is what unites us. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul said that uh, he prays that there'd be no divisions among the Corinthians, that they'd all be in agreement, that there'd be no divisions among them, but that you'd be, that, that you'd be united and in the same mind. Okay, this is Paul's uh, prayer. That he wants them united in the same mind. Now, We've got maybe 900 people in this auditorium right now. I'm just guessing. But we've got 900 disagreements about something or other. I guarantee you. Uh, you know, it's just, in fact, I bet we've got 900 different theological disagreements. We certainly have 900 different disagreements about what color carpet you should have or, or you know, just details like that. You're going to have that. That's normal. We have different perspectives. It's utterly inconsequential if you have a united vision. If 
our reason for getting together and pooling our resources here are is if we're all on the same page on this, the disagreements become inconsequential. What matters is that we rally around the same vision, the same purpose, uh, what God has called us to. I really believe that when churches split apart, they don't split apart because of disagreements. Oh, that's what it looks like. They couldn't decide on whether to have padded pews or not padded pews, you know. Uh, churches divide over stuff like that. But that really isn't the reason. Because it's normal to have disagreements about whether you should have padded pews or not padded pews and anything of this sort. Why, the reason why churches split apart is not because there's disagreements, but because there isn't enough agreement about what is essential. See what I'm saying? Uh, it, 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 it's because they don't have a vision that's bigger than their disagreements. What we need to understand is, is the one thing why we get together here. What are we doing here? And if we understand this, if we understand the vision, the purpose for why we exist, then you know what? It doesn't really matter whether you think we should have padded pews or not or whether you're a Democrat or Republican or, or, or what you think about that program or this program or whatever. I really don't give a rip. What matters is that we have buy-in to the vision that God has called us to. That's what unites us. And without that, then we're unrestrained. We do a lot of good things, but there's no focus to it. Vision is like the cadence of a bunch of rowers in a boat. It, 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 they, they row to the same beat, which means that they go straight. But without a vision, everyone's rowing at a different pace, and that boat's going to be going all over the place. Without a vision, the people are unrestrained. Vision is what unites us. Vision is really no different in the church than it is with an individual. The Bible says this. Hey, this is a really important word for all of us. Uh, a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways, it says in James 1.8. A double-minded person. Now, the, the, the concept of double-mindedness there means you have divided loyalties. Okay, you, you don't have a singular focus to your life. When a person doesn't have a singular focus to their life, they're going to be unstable. They'll make a, one decision one day and then a contradictory decision the next day. There's no rhyme or reason, really, to what they do. Uh, things are done just sort of haphazardly. How they spend their time, how they spend their money, how they invest their energies, it, it's, there's no real focus to it. People who are double-minded... Often their walk doesn't match up with their talk. They have divided loyalties. Uh, you know, on one level, often you get this in the church. The people, as you preach something, as you lay out a vision, as you say what needs to be done, they're all like, yes, oh good, this will be great, won't it be wonderful, hallelujah, I can't wait. But then when it comes time to actually do it, and it comes time to be committed and, and time to play ball, they're gone. You know, because something always comes up. It's always the wrong re weekend. It's always just a, a bad timing, you know, and, and things of that sort. Now, I believe they sincerely want to have uh, kingdom stuff first priority in their life, but their loyalties are divided. What's really real is that there's a lot of other stuff that takes priority. So when push comes to shove, that's what happens. They're unstable in all their ways. They're divided. They're like a, 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 a rowing boat that, that isn't going straight because the, 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 the aspects of their being aren't, aren't rowing in cadence with one another. Vision in an individual gives focus. It gives priorities. It tells you. Uh, if you understand what you're called to do, why do you exist? That's what a vision tells you. Why do, what's your purpose in life? That, that, that's what a vision tells you. When you have a vision statement for your life, a, a direction, a focus, now you make decisions on the basis of that. You know, there are things that are very important, things that are less important, things that are unimportant, and now there's a rhyme or reason to your decisions. Vision clarifies what your life's about. The way to find out what your vision is, if you have one, is to ask this question. What are you willing to die for? What are you willing to die for? And when you answer that question, you'll find out what it is you're living for. Is there anything you're willing to die for? Martin Luther King said this. It's a great quote. 
He basically said, if a person hasn't found what they're willing to die for, they haven't found what they're willing to live for. In fact, he says they're not fit to live. Uh, you're not really living unless you know what, what is more important than life itself for you. I would encourage every individual in this room who's a believer to put down on paper what your vision statement is for your life. Uh, what, is it, what is it that's going to constitute living well for you? For me, my general statement is just this. To make as qualitative and as quantitative an impact for the kingdom of God as is possible before I die. That's it. I, that, that, that's why. And so now all the, all the other things I get involved in have to, in one way or another, at least be consistent with that. All right? You need a vision statement. Why do you live? Well, so it is with a church. A church needs direction. It needs focus. Otherwise, it's going to be unrestrained. It's going to be going in a lot of different directions. It's going to be unstable. It will go rah-rah for this cause one week and rah-rah for a different cause the, the week after that. It needs focus. That's what we're talking about. So I'm going to lay out the vision of Woodland Hills Church, and I'm going to use it to contrast with a number of mythological ideas that people have about what the, the church is supposed to be doing. We've grown around 1,000, 1,300 people in the last six months, and I guarantee you that there's about 1,000 to 1,300 different ideas about what the church is to be. And until that gets clarified, we're going to be going in a lot of different directions. Here's the, 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 the vision statement of Woodland Hills Church in a nutshell. And I'll be referring to this a couple times in the weeks to come. This is the general statement. I'll be flushing it out. But it's basically this. We covenant to be a people. Uh, we covenant to be a community of, of spiritually empowered people. Note the word community there. We're not just a, col- a collection of, uh, of individuals who get together and go rah-rah on the weekend. We want to develop a community of spiritually empowered people, people who are anointed with the Holy Ghost, who've got fire from, from on high. And what do we do? Well, we get together to advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. This is the bullseye for us. It's about warfare, folks. We want to be an army. And where do we want to do this? Well, the bullseye for us is St. Paul. That's our first call, St. Paul in the surrounding area. But we also want to do it to the, to the entire world as the Lord leads. Our first priority isn't going to be Israel or isn't going to be Ethiopia. But as God raises up people who are called to Israel or Ethiopia, we want to empower them and get behind them and send them off. So missions is a part of our, 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 our vision. And we want to do all this working hand-in-hand hand with other expressions of the body of Christ till all reach the fullness of Christ coming out of Ephesians 4. We want to be a networking church that doesn't reinvent the wheel. We want to work in, in conjunction with, with others and bring about the body of Christ. Now this automatically... That vision statement contrasts with one of the most pervasive myths about the church. Here's myth number one. This is what I'll be talking about the rest of this morning. The first myth is that the church exists to make life, our life, my life, a little better. Preach it. Oh, this is pervasive. This is all over the place. The reason why the church exists is to meet my needs, the needs of my family. There's a poll that was done several years ago that showed that 89% of regular churchgoers, and this, this poll defined it as a regular as going once a month or more, um, that they, 89% said, they, on a poll, said that the primary purpose of the church, this is in America now, only Americans think this way, by the way, but 80, 89% said that the primary purpose of the church is to meet my needs and the needs of my family. And no one would doubt that that's one of the things you want to do as a church because, for example, if we want to be spreading the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness, we're going to need to be a place that, that affords people the opportunity to be healed. You can't have warriors that are bleeding to death when they're out there and, and that can work on, on warfare in their family and work on warfare in their minds. So we want to have a counseling center and a deliverance center and a prayer center and all of that. 
You've got to meet the needs of people, but is that the end, you see? If you have a warfare mindset as, as, as we do, that the purpose is to advance the kingdom of God, meeting the needs of people is a means to the end, but it is not an end in and of itself. But in our culture, that is the end in and of itself. It's about me. Because, see, we are all consumers, and we like to look at things as products, and we like to see ourselves as consumers of those products. And so we do that with religion, just like we do it with McDonald's, and we do it with Target, and we do it with Dayton's and all the other stores. So you buy a little piece of religion, you buy a little piece of comfort. Uh, some people think that that's what a giving and offering is. You're paying a little bit for the service, you know. And, and the purpose for a religious service is to tickle yours a little bit, make you feel a little bit better about yourself, and give you five tips on how to have a better marriage, and ten tips on how to be more successful at the office, and three tips on how to raise teenagers, and 17 tips on, on how to take out the garbage. And I don't know, but you have, it's all geared towards the consumer. And see, when churches buy into this mentality, and they do a lot, well, then, you see, it just changes the way you talk about everything. See, I, 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 my, my view is that when I'm talking to you right now, I'm basically sort of a, a captain that's talking to the army. And my job is to motivate and instruct and give charge and, and send you out to do warfare. Now, you talk different to people when you're the captain and they're in the army than you do if uh, you're the seller and they're the buyer. See, if you're the consumer, man, I, you know, and I'm supposed to be selling you a product, and my main goal is to keep you coming back for the product, Boy, I'm going to talk a whole lot different than I, I would if I was in the military. You seen people talk in the military? Sir, yes, sir. What's wrong with you? Can I, I wouldn't talk to you that way. But if you're the customer, I, it's got to be soft. It's got to be nice. It's got to be easy. It's got to be sweet. You know, and it just changes the tenor of everything. I, I, I can't imagine in the early church them taking a poll and having the people vote that the number one priority of the church, the number one goal of the church was to meet the needs of people and their family. You know, in the early church, I'm talking the first century, when you, when you enlisted in that army, you just shortened your life expectancy, expectancy, expectancy significantly. I mean, you, you uh, just got to understand that when you enlisted in the early church, when you said, okay, sign me up in this battle, the chances are that you are sooner or later going to come under persecution. Chances are you might just get yourself crucified. You might get yourself set on fire. That was one of the favorite ways of putting Christians to death. You might be put into a coliseum surrounded by lions for the entertainment of the Romans. Uh, that was another way of putting people to death. You might have to watch your children. You might have to watch your children uh, be fed to lions first. This wasn't a pleasant thing. It certainly wasn't a consumer, user-friendly kind of a thing that you find in the early church. They, they had a totally different mindset about stuff. A poll that I had read showed that most Americans decide what church they're going to go to, not on the basis of what they stand for or the vision of the church or anything like that. They go on the basis of how convenient is the parking space, how, how much time does it take to get there, do they like the, 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 the music, does it sound nice to them, uh, do their kids like the children's church or whatever. And I'm not saying that those are all irrelevant. But it's a little bit sad when that drives your decision about what the purpose of your life is going to be. See, in the early church, I don't think a whole lot of people were worried about parking space. You know, uh, they knew what the cost was. You get this in the ministry of Jesus. Um, listen to some of the things Jesus says. And I'm talking about vision here. What are we called to do? What I'm going to show you here is that we're basically called at least to be willing to die. Uh, you can't read the Bible and miss this. Mark chapter 10. Verse 38, look what Jesus says. He says to his disciples, are you willing to or are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? What's he talking about? Well, he's referring to his future crucifixion. And he says, you know what? I'm going to immerse myself in some pretty unpleasant stuff here. You want to be my disciples? Are you willing to be immersed in the stuff that I'm immersed in? Are you willing to be baptized with that kind of a suffering? 
Nice sell job, Jesus. You should have told him about the nice parking spots that they get when they become a believer. He doesn't do that. His criteria is, are you willing to suffer? Luke chapter 9. If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. We need to understand, to us, a cross is sort of a sentimental thing. It's like a warm fuzzy, you know, it's like, oh, you know, it symbolizes love. In the first century, it symbolized torture. This was the main form of execution. Uh, it was one of the most grueling ways of executing people. So when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, you want to be my disciple? Okay, here's, here's my sales pitch. Uh, take up your cross and follow me. What they're here is something like this. Take up your electric chair. Are you willing to be electrocuted for me? Uh, lethal injection? No, that's a little too soft. Uh, forget lethal injection. Uh, are you willing to be hung for me? You know? uh, are you willing to take up your electric chair and follow me and deny yourself? Okay? What it meant to be a disciple in the early church was being willing to grab on to make Jesus more important than life itself. That's the central purpose for being a believer. Luke 14. Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not my disciple. The meaning of being a believer, the meaning of being a disciple was to take up your cross and follow Jesus. Matthew 10, 39. Jesus says, if anyone will try to find their life, they're going to lose it. But if you lose your life, if you're willing to die, if you give up on life, then you're going to find it. Then you're going to find it. Throughout the Gospels, you just find this about Jesus. There's no soft sell. There's no, there's no sugar coating here. He lays it all on the line. Here's the vision for what the kingdom of God is going to be. You want to follow me? He says this, anyone who puts their hands to the plow and looks back is not worthy of me. Someone says, I want to follow you, and, 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 but I've got to first go bury my father. I mean, let's honor some social customs here. Jesus says, forget social customs. You want to follow me? Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me right now. Someone else says, Lord, I want to follow you. Jesus said to them, well, are you willing to hate mother and father for my namesake? He's not saying that we should go out of our way to hate our mother and father. But he is saying this. Are you willing, if need be, to let go of all family obligations, let go of all family concerns? This may not make your life a little better, you see. This may not make your marriage a little better. It might actually explode things. So much for the family values that you find in Jesus. Yes, he's for family values, but he's saying, I come first. And it may be that this will set you apart. It may be that your husband or your wife will turn you into the Romans' guards. It may be that this will ostracize you from your family. Are you willing to do that for my sake? Not exactly user-friendly, soft-sell, sugar-coated kind of Christianity. This is what the vision of the kingdom of God is about in the ministry of Jesus. Because, folks, what Jesus has in mind is not a community of people who are finding ten steps to make their life a little better. Uh, uh, what he has in mind is a community of people who don't try to make their life right here and now a little better, but they find out what life is really all about. Amen? What he has in mind is a community of people who are radically, ultimately, totally, unconditionally sold out and surrendered to him and value their relationship with him and the cause of working for him more important than life itself, more important than job, more important than family, more important than anything. Because there's only one God, amen, who deserves ultimate allegiance. And so Jesus calls us to that sort of commitment to Him. Now here's the paradox. Here's the paradox. If I could paraphrase Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. The paradox is this. He says, if you lose your life, then you're going to find it. If you lose your life, you're going to find it. It looks like I've been talking about some miserable, world-denying stuff so far. And if you think that, you're not thinking in the line that Jesus tells us to think in. If you lose your life, you do have to lose it, by the way. 
If you die to self, you do have to die to self. If you give up on trying to get life in this world, you do have to do that. Now you're going to find out what life is really all about. If I could paraphrase uh, Matthew chapter 10, it's this. Um, If you give up trying to find what you've been trying to find, then you'll find what you've been trying to find. How did I put it? The thing you're trying to find, you'll finally find when you give up trying to find it. You're trying to find a little bit of life in this world. You're trying to find a little bit of joy in this world. You're trying to find some security in this world. Trying to really, you know, make sure you got the, the lines short up in this world. You're trying to find life in this world. Well, you know what? If you will give up, if you will die to that, if you'll just let go of that and grab on to, to the one thing that really matters, now you're going to find what you've been looking for. Give up trying to wring, wring a little bit of the fullness of life out of this world here, and now you're going to find fullness of life. The paradox at the center of the gospel is this. When you give up trying to get joy in this world, you find joy. The paradox is when you die to self, you find yourself. The paradox is when you live in it with such a mindset that this short, paltry 70 years or so that you have right now, this flicker of a flame, this little breeze we call existence, when you give up trying to hang on to it, now, now, and, and when it becomes meaningless to you or insignificant to you, now it gets infused with meaning and infused with significance. The paradox, when you lose your life, then you find it. What Jesus came to give us was not ten steps on how to live a little better life. He came to give us life. I'll say it again. What Jesus came to do was not to give us ten steps to live a little better life, sort of to tweak the system a little bit. He came to give us life. He says this in John chapter 10. I've, the, the thief comes to kill and to steal and destroy. And the main way he comes to kill and steal and destroy your life is by promising you life and things that don't give you life. He says, but I have come to give you life and and to give it more abundantly. I've come to give you God's life and to give it more abundantly. You know how you're going to get it? By dying. By dying. By giving up on the whole rat race. Quit trying to hang on to this short little paltry 70 years that you have here and grab hold of Jesus Christ. And now those short little 70 years or 50 years or 20 years or whatever you've got to live are going to be infused with the meaning they otherwise never would have had. Here's a little diagram you can think about it like. We've got natural life. Natural life is, is just ordinary biological life. It's life down here below. This is life where we are basically self-centered. This is normal biologically. Uh, we, we, we look to survive, first of all, and then we look to have a little bit of comfort, and we look to have a little bit of security. This is what we do in the natural world. We like a nice retirement program. We like you know, some job security and whatever. That's great. And then we try to get life from things, from finite things around us. We try to get a little bit of self-esteem and a little bit of worth and feel a little bit good about ourselves by the fact that we got a job promotion or, or, or we get a nice house or you're having a good hair day and somebody complimented you on it or you preached a sermon and somebody thought it was good. I mean, yeah, you know, it feeds you a little bit. And see, for most people, that is the end of the story. Life consists in that. Getting a little bit of life from the things around you, getting security, getting comfort, getting pleasure, that's life and that's all there is to be said and done. The Bible, if this, is, if this is life to you, if this is ultimate, nothing wrong with any of that stuff, by the way. The question is this, do you live for that? If that's what you live for, the Bible calls that flesh. The, the mindset in which natural life is the only life, that's called flesh. And it's normal for people who don't have a born-again spirit to live that way because they don't have a principle that drives them beyond that. This is the only life they know. There's a profound emptiness there, a futility there, because they know that it's dying, it's going to be gone shortly, but it's all they've got, so they hang on to it. Now, there's another kind of life, which we might call kingdom life. This is the life that Jesus brings. This life, here you die to yourself. You don't try to hang on to your 70 years here or whatever it is. Uh, You found something much greater than life itself. His name is Jesus Christ. 
And here you get life, not because somebody notices that you're having a good hair day or they like your sermon. Life for you consists in fellowship with God and enjoying His life and His joy and His peace and knowing that it goes on throughout eternity. And see, when you've got, when you've got this, uh, this life, when you've got what the Bible calls Zoe life, eternal life, now you still like it when people notice that you're having a good hair day, but if they don't, it really doesn't matter that much. And yeah, you still like it if people thought your sermon made a point. But if they don't think that, you know, it doesn't matter that much. Because what, what is life to you, what is centered to you, what is significance to you, what is meaning to you has been resolved and is resolved throughout eternity. And it's not that you stop caring about security or, or comfort. Uh, you, you still live in the world, but now you don't live of the world because the world just doesn't hold a lot of goods for you. You know, it, it no longer is ultimate. You still balance your checkbook. But you don't, you, you, you don't have that kind of hyper-anxiety over the whole thing that you used to have because you realize that there's a, it, it's a penultimate thing. It's a, it's a less significant kind of a thing. In the early church, you find this attitude. It runs throughout the, the epistles and the gospels. There's almost a casualness to life itself. Uh, life, when you grab hold of eternal life now, uh, rather than spending all your time trying to get ten steps to figure out something a little bit better, nothing wrong with that, but now the purpose of your life isn't that. Now the purpose of your life is something that's greater than life itself. So light living itself becomes sort of casual. The Bible sometimes talks about believers as though they were already dead. I mean, it's an amazing thing. And the nice thing about being dead, picture yourself if you're dead. You've got nothing to lose. So you've got nothing to fear. So go for it, baby. You know, it's like this in Romans 6, Paul says, he says that we've, we've died with Christ Jesus. The old, the old self is dead with Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6. Live, he says in verse 11, consider yourselves also to be dead. In terms of the natural world as an ultimate source of life, you are dead. Paul says this in, in Galatians chapter 2. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ. Paul had so died to his old way of trying to get life, his old religious way of trying to feel good about himself, uh, his old ways of trying to find significance and meaning. He had so died to that that he said, you know what, it's no longer I that lives. Not the old self. No, I, I, that's gone, dead. Now, the life I live, it's Jesus Christ. He says this in Philippians chapter 1, uh, that the life I now live, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me. What? Think of the things that you, that you would not fear. Think of the things that you would not hesitate doing. If, in fact, it was no longer you that was doing it, but Christ who lives within you. If you were dead right now, and you had nothing to lose, what would you do that you're not now doing? Well, I'm here to tell you this morning, go ahead and do it because you're already dead. <laughs> I got good news for you folks. We're all a bunch of zombies. <laughs> if you're a believer, you're a zombie with Jesus Christ living inside of you. You've got nothing to fear, praise God. Jesus lives within you. That ultimate source of life lives within you. Paul says this in Romans 14. Look at his attitude here. I look, there's freedom in this. When you're dead, you are free. He says this in Romans 14. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. This is kind of casualness stuff here. See, this is why the believer can have a, a, a carefreeness, uh, an incredible carefreeness and an incredible boldness. Whether you live or whether you die, you know what? You, you belong to the Lord. Worst case scenario, you die and now you're with the Lord. And that's really not so bad now, is it? There can be for the believer, in fact, there must be for the believer, a, a rather open-palmed uh, attitude towards life. 
We're here for 70 years, 75. Some people live 100 years. Some people live 20. Really, compared to eternity, what difference does it make? The Bible says it's like grass. It's here today. It's, it, it's gone tomorrow. The Bible says it's like smoke that ascends into the air. It's really a very, very quick endeavor. Freedom comes and life comes and passion comes. You live fully when you stop being addicted to life. Amen? When you stop trying to lay hold of it, you stop trying to grab onto it. But when you live as though you're already dead, and when life is Christ Jesus, and your source of joy is Christ Jesus, and your source of meaning is Christ Jesus, you know, and and the vision for your life is about Christ Jesus, now there's a freedom that comes. There's a sort of carefreeness that comes, praise God, a joy that comes. And precisely when life, this short little puny 70 years that we've got, when it stops being ultimately significant, now you can really live it, praise God. Now you can really infuse it with passion, precisely because it's not ultimate to you. This is the life that Jesus calls us to. The church isn't called to be a a place where we learn how to tweak our life a little bit better. It's a place where we learn how to live life to the fullest, amen? To live it with passion, to live it with glory, because we live it in Christ Jesus. uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. Don't worry. Do not worry about your life. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Can any of you by worrying add a single hour to the span of life? Okay, tell you what, why just worry a whole lot about how long you're going to live? Okay, start worrying about that. You know what? Every study shows you that that's one of the best ways to shorten your life. See, this is the paradox of the kingdom. The less you worry about it, the more of it you're going to have. When you stop needing it, you get it. But when you think you need it, you lose it. Chill, Jesus says. Chill. It's no big deal here. It's my modern paraphrase. The pagans, those people who don't know God, the pagans strive after all these things. They're always, oh, I've got to get more clothes, I've got to get more food, I've got to get more of this, that, and the other thing. But you strive first for the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This is what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, he's not saying that, you know what, if you just trust God, your life is going to be wonderful, your life is going to be great, things are going to go well for you. Oh, yes, hallelujah. That's not what he's saying. A lot of people interpret him as saying that. Don't worry, because God's going to make sure that it goes nice for you. Sorry, but he's talking to people who in about a decade are going to get fed the lions. Not quite what he's referring to. What he is saying is this. I'm giving you something that's more important than life itself. And you grab hold of this, you know what? You don't need to worry about it. Yeah, you still balance your checkbook. You still do the ordinary things in life. But you don't need to be striving for them. You don't need to be so hungry for them. Because what I'm giving you dwarfs insignificance, uh, the, the, the issues of this world. You're rich, wonderful. You're poor, big deal. Seventy years and you're done with it and then you'll be rich throughout eternity. Let go of it. You know, you, you, you're dressed to the hilt down here. Wonderful, praise God, you're blessed. you got to wear rags. Well, so what? You're going to be clothed in righteousness throughout eternity. You can deal with it. You know, things are going well for you. Wonderful. Things, things are going bad for you. Too bad. But you know, in 70 years, you're going to be living with Jesus. What difference does it really make? You know, you, you're good looking. Wonderful. You're not so good looking. you got the short and the stick. Who cares? You know? We are robed in the beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't put a lot of stock in that old thing. You were raised in a good environment. Wonderful. You were raised in a bad environment. That's sad. That's too bad. But you know what? There's healing in Christ Jesus. In the meantime, you've got to know this. There'll come a day, and it won't be long, when you're going to be living with Him, and it won't really matter a whole lot how you were raised or what you wore or what you looked like or the family environment or, or the job that you had or whatever. Praise God. Knowing Jesus Christ relativizes all the issues of this world. Grab hold of Jesus Christ. Just throw yourself at Him and make Him your all in all. And now you begin to really live because you don't need to really live. 
Whether you got health or don't have health, whether you live 20 years or 70 years compared to eternity, it's so minor. And I don't mean to minimize the issues of this world. I don't mean to minimize that. But frankly, if you have an eternal perspective on things, they are minimized. They are minimized. And you let go of life. And precisely when you let go of life, you can start living it fully. I think living for Jesus is kind of like parachuting. Kind of like parachuting. I don't know if you've ever done this. But you got to just let go. It's scary. You know, there's a lot of security in this world. We like to worry about, uh, well, we don't like to worry about, but we do worry about a lot our, our, uh, our security and our finances and, and the things of this world because we're used to that. We like things that we can control, don't we? It's hard for us just to trust God to do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 6, to not be anxious about things. There is a letting go that has to happen. This is a dying to self that has to happen. You let go. You die to self. And it's scary. But freedom comes when you let go. Yesterday, I don't know quite how it happened, but I got talked into skydiving. I don't know. My die, Norm's wife, called us up and said, Hey, I'm going to do some skydiving this weekend. Want to go? And my daughter, Alicia, who's a daredevil if ever there was one, says, Oh, yeah, we got to go. We got to go. We got to go. And so she got the gene from me, I suppose, because I couldn't pass it up either. So we end up doing this skydiving. So we go to this class, and first of all, you got this guy who looks like uh, an uh, exaggerated version of ZZ Top with his four-foot-long beard, and he's talk, talking to you on this video, and, and he, he tells you basically, you know, you, you have to sign away your life. We're not responsible for anything here. And he, he says basically what, what we're telling you is this. You are risking the possibility of serious injury and death for the sake of a thrill. Sign on the bottom line. And we do it. It's nuts. It's crazy. And they do a 20-minute class, and then you're going to go up and do skydiving. And I was fine. I was Mr. Cool. I was Mr. Calm. But on the way up there, you know, uh, all of a sudden it's getting a little bit scary. And then when they open, I was still doing fine until they opened the door. And all of a sudden there's this wind and a roaring. And you look down there, and you're up 14,000 feet, and it's a long way down. And, uh, and, and I thought we had, there was about 20 people in this plane. I didn't know that 15 of them, all except for our crowd, were like regulars. Uh, and they jumped out five at a time. I thought I'd have a little bit of time here to get myself ready. All of a sudden, I'm, I'm at the door. And it's time to jump. Um, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm remembering all these documentaries I've seen on TV about parachuting accidents, you know. And uh, uh, the heart's going a little bit. And this plane is feeling really secure and really cozy. And somebody, I'm telling you, soiled their pants up there because it reeked to high heaven, which was one motivation to jump. <laughs> i got to get out of this plane. Hey, but I don't blame him. I was that close from doing it myself. But you're hanging on to this bar, and, and, also, and the guy's in back to you, and he's going to, you know, this is tandem jumping, so you've got to just trust him. In fact, the guy that was with me goes to Woodland Hills Church here, and you do this rocking, and it's like, can we just talk about it a little bit? You know, this plane feels, feels so safe. This plane feels so cozy. It's so far down there. And then all of a sudden, you don't jump. They push you. But here's the thing. There's that moment of decision. If you can show a picture of Alicia. we got some pictures of my daughter here. See, this is, this is the moment of truth. When you let go, it's so hard to let go. Every instinct of bone in your body says, hold on, hold on, hold on. But you make the decision to let go. Okay, here's me in a free fall. Next picture. That's me. Look at I'm telling you, those first ten seconds are terrifying. <laughs> You're upside down, free falling to the ground. But then there comes, as soon as you let go of that and you get over that terror, there comes this incredible freedom. Uh, honestly, to me, it struck me like this. Uh, look, at, there's nothing I can do about it now. Nothing. <laughs> honestly, 
I, I, I can't go back to the plane. And uh, if I die, I die. Uh, so I might as well enjoy the trip on the way down. And there was, I'm telling you, I could go to the next picture here. This is my daughter falling down, going down there. This, uh, this looks like she's having fun. She's terrified. <laughs> and uh, here's a picture of Di uh, as she's free falling. Uh, that's, that's Norm's wife. You are so fully awake. Oh, you are awake. Uh, you are alive. You are aware of everything. It is, it is an incredible sort of thing. And I'm not just trying to do a sales pitch for skydiving here. It's not everyone's cup of tea. But here's the analogy. Life is found in the free fall, folks. There's security on the plane. Yeah, there's security. There's security in the familiar. Yeah, there is. There's security in just doing what, what you've always done. Security in staying within the boundaries of the normal. Security in not ever being criticized by any, anyone. Not ever looking unusual. Security in always doing the predictable. But I'm telling you this. Life is found in the free fall. When you stop trying to grab onto the comfort and grab onto the convenience and living for what we've been brainwashed to think is life in this American dream. When you just let go and throw yourself into a free fall relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you find out what life is really all about, praise God. Uh, you find out how to live on the edge. Someone once said that if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And uh, there's a point to that. We were made, folks, we were made, us human beings were not made to just go through the motions of a, of a stupid 70 years re repetitive rat on a treadmill kind of a deal. We were made in the image of God and God is passionate, amen? God, when He does anything, He goes all the way with it. God sells out. He creates the world and He gets Himself killed in the process. That's the kind of God we're talking about. We are made in His image. We're made in His image, which means this. We are most fully alive. We're most fully human. We're most fully awake. We're most filled with joy. When we're, when we're living on the edge, when we're sold out, when, we're, when we have this abandoned relationship with God, when we let go, when we take hold of fearlessness, the Bible says this, that God has not given to us a spirit of fear. First Timothy chapter 1. God's not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Amen? He's not given to us a spirit of fear. The Spirit inside of you, believer, the Holy Spirit inside of you isn't a fearful, uh, isn't a fearful uh, God, isn't, isn't a fearful spirit, a timid spirit, a, oh no, what if I fail kind of a spirit? What if people don't like me? What if I'm not popular? That's not the spirit that comes from God. That maybe comes from your past, it maybe comes from your upbringing, it maybe comes from your own phobias, but it doesn't come from God. And in Jesus Christ, you've got the power to bulldoze over that, praise God, by letting go, by jumping in the relationship with Him. We are not as a church here to tweak our lives, to make them a little bit nicer, a little bit sweeter, a little bit easier. It may be that, in fact, following Jesus Christ makes things a whole lot harder. But I'll tell you this, following Jesus Christ gives life. The only life that's worth living. You know what? It may be that even being a believer shortens your life as it did in the early church. I don't know. It doesn't happen much in America. It may someday. But you know what? Give me quality of life over quantity of life anytime. I'd rather have one passionate year of living than a hundred years of pseudo-living, biological living, natural living. The, the quantity doesn't matter much because we've got the quantity. You're going to be living throughout eternity. Who cares about that? What you want is quality. We've got one shot at this thing. One shot to make a difference for Jesus Christ. And the, the, the teaching that we go around over and over and over again until we get it right is just not, not, not biblical. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says it's appointed unto people once to die, and after that the judgment. We've got one shot. What we're called to do, this is my heart here, is to, is to help people discover what it is to live in Jesus Christ. To have that free-fall relationship. Let me ask you this. As the musicians get ready to come up here and lead us in worship, 
I want to ask you this question. In your mind right now, think of one thing, and we all have them. One thing that maybe God's called you to do or that you've always dreamt about doing, whether it's religious or not, right now I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm hammering home the principle. One thing that you don't do because you're afraid. You're simply afraid. I'm going to tell you this. Whatever other reasons you have for not doing something, fear isn't a legitimate one. Fear is not a legitimate one. And I want you to then try to do that. Take that one thing. For some of you, you're called to be leaders in small groups, but fear is keeping you from doing it. For others, it's helping out in some other ministry, but fear is keeping you from doing from, from doing it. For others, maybe it's 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 uh, you know doing something crazy with your spouse. You've always been Mr. Predictable. Well, why don't you try being Mr. Unpredictable? Go do something that's a little bit different with, with, with your spouse. Whatever it is, see that in your mind's eye. And now I want you to try to see it from the perspective of Jesus Christ. See it from eternity. Look how small it is. Look how insignificant it is. What's the worst that could happen? What if your fears came true and you were embarrassed? Who cares? You're humiliated. Who cares? You died. Hey, now you're with Christ. You see, the worst case scenario, the worst case scenario is not that bad of a scenario. In Christ, you can have the boldness to live fully, to live passionately, precisely because this life isn't where it's at anyways. It's gone. It's in the process of decay very fast. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that? And it's just, it's going very, very quickly here. Don't grab onto it. Grab onto Him. And now you live it fully, praise God. We're going to enter into a time of worship. Worship is about fully and passionately having a free fall, abandoned uh, praise towards God. Why? Because He's worthy. Amen? Because He's worthy. doesn't matter what style of music we play, whether it's upbeat, whether it's mellow, whatever. What matters is how invested you are in it. So I encourage all of us to focus on the Lord totally with all of our heart, with all of our mind. We'll start, as the ushers come forward, we'll start by worshiping God with, with, uh, with an offering, as they did in the Old Testament. Jesus says this. Jesus, it's right in the same passage where he tells us not to be anxious about stuff. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Because moth and rust corrupts them. They decay. They're short. They don't matter. Everything you're investing in in this world comes to nothing. And it will come to nothing very quickly. Maybe tonight. You don't know. But he says, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven which go on forever and ever and ever. So one of the ways we worship God is by investing in His cause and the furthering of the kingdom of God against the kingdom of darkness. And so we'll worship Him first by taking up an offering and then Norm will have a stand and then we'll just pour out ourselves in, in praise for Him. Praise God because He is worthy. So Father, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, fill this place with Your power, with Your love, with Your energy, Lord God. I pray, Lord God, that as we're worshiping you, Lord, you'd be doing your secret work in the Holy Spirit to free us from fears and bondages, Lord God, to make us bold and radical disciples of you, Lord God. Do your work here and be glorified in our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.